Greetings, everyone. If you had seen this building gradually taking shape, you would realize that we are sitting inside, for all practical purposes, a barn. This was built by a contractor who builds barns. It was built, I think, as cheaply as it is possible to build a building today, because the posts that are sunk in the concrete that you cannot see are actually just laminated beams that are bolted together. The bottom part of them is soaked or painted in glass, like fiberglass, and instead of steel or metal, this is a wooden building. There are wooden joists or braces over your head. Uh, we've already talked about a few bugs we've got to work out. The mercury vapor lights are a little bit harsh. We're going to get them dimmed down, perhaps add some other types of lights to offset them. Obviously, we're having a little problem with the sound system. We've got some feedback in the return air unit here that was kind of humming away. And we're just learning some of those things here in the immediate offing of the installation of everything. We didn't get the big transformer till late this last week. Originally, we'd scheduled services differently because we didn't think we would even have air conditioning in here for you today. So at least we have that. I won't say a lot more about it except to tell you what we're planning. You notice the red lines on the carpet. Uh, you know that we have in here a rather awkward-sized, by no means full-sized, basketball court and also the black lines that are drawn for a volleyball court. Perhaps later on we can put tape down for badminton. During the upcoming summer, very shortly now, as a matter of fact, we're hoping to house virtually all of our young ladies, the girls who will be coming. Uh, I think maybe we'll put up stands of some kind to make individual cubicles, but we'll make this building off limits uh, from, you know, sunset or whatever until the next day for the young men. And this will be the girls' dormitory, and they can take use of both the showers and lavatory facilities in there. Uh, we're going to take the little temporary buildings and bring the ones up at the top of the hill down closer together, cluster them together. All of the boys will stay in the outdoor temporary dorms and use the lavatories and restroom down in the pavilion building down here. So it's going to be wonderful for the summer program because they'll have an air-conditioned interior for basketball and volleyball, badminton, and even for sleeping and so on. We have kitchen equipment down in the Pavilion. We hope to add on to that at some time, expand the kitchen as well as expand the seating. As you might well know, this has cost a great deal of money. Uh, we'll say more about that on the dedication ceremony a week from today. But other incidental things are coming along that I want to just share with you by way of just a little bit of a chat here before I get started and what I'd prepared to say to you. You have a one-time cost factor in gearing up for something like this summer program. I don't have any idea how many children or how many youngsters are going to be here this year yet. I haven't heard. Uh, I've made a wild guess of somewhere around 120, but I have no idea. But we're having to buy mattresses, bunks, and I'm talking here about several thousand dollars worth uh, for your children and the children of the church brethren to be able to sleep comfortably while they're here. And, of course, equipment is necessary. We're having to purchase a boat, and we've already done that, purchased one of them. We're going to be leasing another one or two, as we did last year. And little by little, we hope to be able to crank up a really wonderful summer program eventually, as we were doing in the parent organization and worldwide when I helped organize that program and helped ramrod it, approve it, and had everything to do with it. I don't think my father even ever visited the summer program for the first 20 years or better of its existence. Uh, we originally started up here at Big Sandy. We moved up on Lake of the Pines on some leased property, 
the first year on an island where we actually brought food back and forth from the kitchens in Big Sandy in a boat, and the kids had to use canvas wrapped around holes in the ground that were outhouses. That's how primitive it was. And then up in Aura, Minnesota, when we first uh, obtained that property, that was extremely primitive the first couple of years. But little by little, we built the Cadillac of all summer camps. Any of you in this building been there, maybe as a student or at any time in your life? How many people have been to Orr, Minnesota? Quite a few of you. I think if you've been there, you will agree with me that was absolutely a premier Cadillac of a camp, one of the finest installations you have ever laid eyes on. Now, eventually, we're going to have one of the finest installations you've ever laid eyes on right here. And hopefully downstream we will have air-conditioned dormitories, and we will have a fleet of canoes, and we'll have five or six nautique, ski nautique type boats where these kids can have more than just maybe two times around the patch on water skis, but can learn to water ski while they are here. But you might not know what our most desperate need is. You might say money. No, it's not. Money is a very, very serious need, but it's really second. Our first most critical need is personnel. It is counselors, teachers, leadership. And we need volunteers who are not, you know, volunteering just to have fun themselves, but people who are really dedicated to the program that we want to run for these children and who believe in it, believe in the young people that we have. I get to thinking back, I'm just kind of overcome with a lot of emotions today of nostalgia, uh, feeling that this is about 12 months plus 12 years from the time I got my fateful letter back in 1978, that here I am in a beautiful building on grounds of almost 20 acres on a beautiful lake where I was sitting out here uh, kind of licking my wounds, losing 10 pounds in the northern part of this very lake while I was going through this trauma of having received that letter from my father in 1978. If an angel would have walked up and said, Garner Ted, about nine miles down there on that lake, 13 years from now, you'll be standing in a platform in a beautiful new building and talking to the Church of God congregation, I wouldn't have known what in the world he was talking about. I would have had no more concept of where God, and I believe that, was leading this work. Now, if I were to go back, I could bore you to death by telling you of all the foibles, all of the doors we banged on, some of them we tried to force open to have other pieces of property clear over on Lake Tyler, right over here in a wooded area with one little lot across the street that gave us access to a, a little muddy kind of a lagoon over by the wharf on this same lake, and the neighbors were all up in arms, a strip of property way on down the lake here by the dam that was owned by a whole lot of families, we actually had a contract. We made the offer. You can ask Mrs. Allie Dart. I mean, that was a, a done deal. They just couldn't get all the people together to get their signatures on the paper, or we would have been down there. We tried to buy this other property up here. We had money, cash money, down on that property and a signed contract. God didn't want us over there. If I were to tell you all the details about how this property came to us, it would just be a, a story straight out of fantasy land. Same thing might be said for the office property that has served us so well for the past several years. So this is another raw new beginning. But please, as you look at the roughness of the grounds, and let me caution you about your children because there are big old spikes sticking up out of the concrete down there if any children 
were to run where we've left some rebar sticking up for our curbing that isn't poured yet and were to fall on that, be aware that these grounds are by no means complete. There are hazards out there. Keep track of where your kids are. Don't let anybody get hurt. But give me time, three, five years, seven years, and eventually we're going to have, God willing, if that's what he wants, an academy like a college campus on these properties. There may be other properties on over behind us. There may be other waterfront properties that gradually God will bring to us. Beginning hopefully in about July, at the very latest, perhaps August, we will be breaking ground right up at the top of this hill. And a lot of those little pads will be shoved out of the way. And many, many tons of dirt are going to be just pushed off the top of that hill and leveled. And we will be pouring a slab for an approximate 16,000 square foot office building, which will be built out of steel by the Tyler Building Systems. And then our own carpenters and crew will, as they have here, finish the interior and do all of the offices. And at long last, I will have a television studio which will have a set, and I won't have to sweep everything off my desk every Tuesday and then put the cameras and different chairs and everything around there and be in total chaos, but it'll be right in the center of the building, just across the hall from my office. We will be able to expand and to have room for all the functions that we have grown into in this work, the computer, everything we're doing, the print shop, the bulk mailing, the audiovisual tape programs, all of our incoming and outgoing mail departments, all of our executive departments, editorial, uh, Mr. Vance Stinson, and by that time, hopefully, some other people who will come along and be working with us in that regard. So, little by little, we are growing. This is, I think, the beginning of something that is going to become something of which we can all be extremely grateful, and perhaps rightly, in the right way, proud. So I thank God for it. I'll say more about that on the dedication ceremony when a week from now we will have perhaps all the brethren from Texarkana, Shreveport, Dallas-Fort Worth, Houston, from hopefully some of them down around Austin and the Hill Country, uh, people all over. I imagine we may have 400, 500 people here by next Sabbath, so it will look like a pretty good-sized crowd then and give a little bit of a foretaste of what the Feast of Tabernacles will be like. I don't know if all of you can see this plaque in front of me. It's kind of partially concealed by the flowers, but I think you know what it is. It is the seal, the corporate seal, of the Church of God International. I'm going to bring a shield that I have on the wall of the workroom in the office out here in this next week and have some very strong men because it's awfully heavy. Hold it up and see if it'll fit on this back wall. If it will, then perhaps we can put it up there, but it's old, old English armor that my father gave me way back in the early 1960s that he got from Herod's in London that dates all the way back to the days of William the Conqueror. I saw just the other day right up here the skirt and the leggings to it and the other pieces to the armor, a suit of armor, but I just had the breast piece or the breastplate and the helmet and the two swords that are of great antiquity, I think they date to about the 1600s, as I said, crossed on a shield that was red and black leather that matched the leather that was inside my office at that time and had a metal shop in Pasadena, California, put on a metal piece that looks like a banner, a portion of the words from the scripture I want to turn to now in Ephesians, the sixth chapter, and beginning in, I'll read up to it from verse 10. 
And that beautiful piece that I brought with me over here that was in my office, it was a gift from my father, was right in the entry of our original little office building on the South Loop up in Tyler. And from that time on, it's been on the office uh, wall in there in Tyler, and will be moved out here if it fits. If it doesn't fit, doesn't look right, then I won't put it there. I'll put it somewhere else, but we'll take a look at that. Paul writes to the Ephesians, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Now, obviously, this is an analogy. But people wore armor in those days that was even far more archaic than the armor during the days of William the Conqueror. There was far more leather and less metal in it. But the Roman soldiers wore this kind of armor, and that was what the Apostle Paul referred to. That you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, and most of us know better than that, don't we? Or we think we do. We think we do. My hair would stand straight up on end if I were to relate to you the many occasions in my life, especially in the early years of my experience in the ministry, when I ran face-to-face into demons when I was actually seized in the back and held immobile with my tongue unmoving, rigid as a poker in my own bed by a demon. And when six other people on Ambassador College campus that very same night were similarly attacked, related the identical same experience and how my tongue finally was loosened when I could think mentally of the name of Jesus Christ. And I sat bolt upright in bed and said, in the name of Jesus Christ, I rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. And then my son David screamed in his bed in terror. My wife and I got out of bed, rushed into the bedroom where the boys were, the bunk bed, and knelt down and began praying out loud. I did at the top of my lungs for God to protect us. And about that time, and there was only that much space under my house where a cat might crawl, I heard exactly like a, a man with a huge big stick in his hand go underneath the beams of my house. That same night, Bryce Clark, Coester Carter, Dr. Benjamin Ray, and several other people on the Ambassador College campus were seized and held rigid and had to cry out in the name of Christ until that thing let go of them. Anybody in this room ever comes up and tells me there are no demons? You're looking at a person who has not only had human beings who were possessed of demons, perhaps more than one, look me right in the eye. I have looked into people's faces and have heard screeching violins in discordant, unresolved dissonance and had trouble focusing my eyes and gaining control of my mind. Now, we think that our problem is some other human being. I can relate to you cases where every time a major breakthrough was about to take place in the work of God, Satan the devil attacked. Now, it's easy, on the other hand, for someone who is in the wrong to blame the devil, isn't it? We all are aware of those tactics. I've seen people like, and I don't want to, you know, take off on the people who are in jail or ought to be in jail, who in my opinion are a pack of crooks that are bilking the public out of hundreds of millions of dollars in the guise of televangelism. You know about some of those cases. But they're always very quick to blame the devil. 
Satan is attacking this church when actually they are at fault. Well, I'm aware of both extremes here. That people who themselves are evil and are at fault and are wrong can dodge behind the devil and blame it on the devil when in fact they're at fault. But really most of the time it's the other way around. People think other people are their problem. Finances are their problem. Sickness is their problem. The weather is their problem. Traffic is their problem. All kinds of things that are a problem, but they have a problem of identifying the enemy. Now, my analogy today is, in a sense, a military one, because it was Paul's analogy. Paul borrowed from the military and told Christians what the military wore and carried as a weapon and gave them an understanding of our Christian life, the struggle, if you will, that we have to endure for all of the years of our Christian life. And he said, under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. So he was showing that Satan the devil has a hierarchical structure against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. Mr. Dart in the Bible study was mentioning a lot of that, murder. I think uh, hopefully all of you read the last issue of the International News. If you did, did you read that beautiful article written by the gentleman that we got from a college that we got permission to reprint? Well, I hope you did, and if you didn't, please pick it up. You missed something incredibly important. Did you read my article? Don't be embarrassed if you didn't, so I don't want to ask anybody to hold your hands up. But did you read my article the preceding month? on America's obscene bloodlust. Some of you probably couldn't care less. You don't read what I write. Well, that's to your loss. Sorry about that. You lose. But if you read those two articles in a row, I mean, it is just, uh, you better have a bucket handy because you're going to want to vomit. And when you read some of the things that are going on with the guise of entertainment, and then you read these scriptures about principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world and against spiritual wickedness, actually the margin says wicked spirits, but it means the same thing because those wicked spirits are the influences that create spiritual wickedness, but it's demonic spirits, Satan the devil himself, in high places. Now, I know it sounds presumptuous of me, but let me just present to you a thesis. Somehow, I do not think that Satan the devil is blind furious today with the Pope. I don't think Satan the devil today, as he watched Oral Roberts get up and yawn and stretch and reach for his teeth in the glass or whatever else he does when he gets up, just got blind furious at Oral Roberts, and is out there figuring all through Oklahoma, how can I get Oral Roberts? I don't want to get Oral, because Oral talks about the devil, trying to get him all the time. Devil's after all Oral, according to him. Somehow, I just don't believe that today, the devil is really frustrated to death trying to get a hold of Dr. Schuler, or that he's up there camped on, perhaps, Dr. Billy Graham's doorstep. It's hard for me to imagine that Satan the devil is just furious at George Bush. Dick Cheney and Colin Powell. Is it presumptuous of me to propose to you that that one church with which the devil is most incensed and enraged 
is the church which will be doing the work of God, fulfilling the commission of Christ, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God to all the world as best they possibly can with all of the power and strength that is provided by the Holy Spirit and by the sacrifice of the money of those individuals who donate, many of them on fixed incomes, many elderly, many shut-ins. We read their letters all the time. How many letters have I read of little old ladies who feel guilty because on their $470 a month welfare or Social Security check, they can't afford to send more than 3 or $5 and say, I wish I could send more, but I just can't. And we pray for them every Friday morning. We get so much mail of that type. So I know that Satan the devil is angry with this work. I shudder to think that he hates me, but then I know that I need protection. So when I pray for God's angels to be over my house, I learned years ago to also pray, could they please be under my house? And could they even be around and in my house? Could they just be everywhere around to protect us, protect my family, our loved ones, your family, God's church, and to keep us safe from Satan the devil? On other occasions in my life, I've had to go through mental gymnastics, in a sense, a wrestling match, a spiritual and mental wrestling match. I've had people come to me and say, Garner Ted, I don't understand this. I go around and, and a curse word will come into my mind all of a sudden, and it'll make me just want to say something evil. I'll say, of course I understand that. I know how that can be because there are evil spiritual influences that sometimes come around and will actually try to plant a thought in your mind that will try to get you thinking or to get into a particular mood and then you will kind of begin to see yourself in a different juxtaposition or relationship or whatever to some other human being and they, they want to influence your mind. They just put a thought into your brain and get you thinking in a certain way. It's the way Satan works. What did Paul say? Wherefore, because this is true, if you doubt that's true, you doubt God, you doubt the Bible, you doubt the Holy Spirit, if you think there is no devil, there are no demons, that our wrestling match is not with each other but with Satan the devil, and you just doubt the Word of God. Because that's who is ultimately responsible. Wherefore, because that is so, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Now, that's not just some date in the future in prophecy. That's whatever day evil is around you. That's whatever day that evil comes your way. Any evil, hateful day and evil experience, you've got to be able to withstand it, but you won't unless you have the armor of God. And having done all to stand, to remain, to remain faithful, not to fall, not to stumble, not to let Satan get an advantage of you. By the way, let me just interject something. I don't know if you're aware of the fact that certain churches, and I won't name the one, but I happen to see a forum of ministers, and one of them was a pastor of a church out here in Troop. And I didn't really remember from my college days that this one fundamentalist church down here in the Southeast Bible Belt believed that. But this pastor was saying, quoting from the book of Revelation, that 20th chapter about the great angel that came down with a chain and bound Satan the devil for a thousand years. I was utterly astonished when in the next moment out of his mouth came the statement or the question, now, he said, when was the devil bound? I thought, well, what are you talking about? You're reading the book of Revelation. It was a television panel. 
and they were interviewing about five or six different ministers of different faiths about, quote, premillennialism, amillennialism, or postmillennialism, which is their isms for whether or not Christ comes before the millennium, whether you don't believe in it at all, or whether Christ comes after the millennium is over, etc., etc. And they were kind of arguing that. His next comment was, now we go back here and we see, and he picked something out of the fifth chapter of John or some place that had nothing to do with anything about how Christ said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. Now we can see from that that Satan the devil was bound at the time of the resurrection of Christ. If I had been wearing uppers, they would have been on my knees. I, I didn't. I had not heard a thing like that before. I don't remember from my college days anybody being that stupid. That's stupid, folks. Every scripture from the time of the resurrection of Christ in the Bible then that deals with the devil in a daily personal sense. Peter's saying he's like a roaring lion walking around. Discard that. This scripture right here, that you, now, in Ephesus, you Ephesians, here and now, might be able to withstand Satan the devil. Discard that. There is no devil to withstand. He's already bound. There's a church right down there a few miles. You can drive down, sit and listen to the pastor, and he believes that. There isn't any devil for you to resist. He's already bound. That guy doesn't know the book of Revelation is set in the future and that Satan is to be bound at the time of the second coming of Christ for the entire millennium, as the Bible plainly states. That just blew me away. I, I thought, well, how can anybody be stupid enough to believe a doctrine like that? They believe it by their tens and twenties and hundreds of thousands because they don't know the Bible, they don't study the Bible, and their pastors are deceived, perhaps self-deceived, and they teach them that. Well, the devil isn't bound yet. It kind of chills me to say this, I have to inform you, the devil's loose out there today. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. Now, let me paraphrase that. Put truth on, you know, as a pair of pants, or a pair of slacks, if you prefer, or a skirt. Having your loins girt about with truth. What's that mean? Well, obviously, the truth is God's word. It is God's doctrine. It's true as opposed to false. It's light as opposed to dark. It is godliness as opposed to Satanism or Satan's lies. It is true values. It is honesty. It's that which is right and good. Having your loins girt about with truth as if you put on a pair of slacks or pants that are labeled the truth and you're wearing them and having on the breastplate of righteousness. And righteousness is perfection. It's the obedience to God's commands. We know that Psalm 119, 172, we've quoted that for decades, says, all thy commandments are righteousness. And righteousness means living according to the will of God perfectly, pleasing God in your life, in your attitudes of heart and mind. And your feet shod, not with calf or horsehide, but with the preparation of the gospel of peace, reminding you of the scripture, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of them that preach the gospel or bring the gospel of peace. As if you slip on your loafers or slippers or shoes and tie them up, as if the gospel is what is with you, helping you take every step you walk. Above all, taking the shield 
of faith, a defensive weapon, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the evil one, as Ivan Panin and the Diaglot and others say, the wicked, meaning the wicked one, meaning Satan the devil. Fiery darts. Now, that's not just necessarily barbs from somebody else in the way of a vicious verbal attack or a nasty letter or a note from the IRS, you're about to be audited or uh, something of that nature to somebody that hates you or somebody that curses you. But it's what I mentioned earlier. It says that there is a struggle, that there is a wrestling match, that we, we who are Christians, in a daily, weekly, monthly sense, are wrestling against wicked spirits in high places. And oftentimes, I don't think we recognize who is our enemy. And therefore, I don't think oftentimes we are conscious of donning our armor. Now, follow along with the military analogy for a moment. If we had out there in the Saudi Arabian desert military men who got up and just walked out in their skivvies and jumped into an M1A1 tank or an armored personnel carrier and their officer looked at, at them in amazement and said, well, where's your helmet? Well, I forgot it. Well, well, where's your rifle? Well, he forgot that. Well, where's your flak jacket? Well, I, I decided it's too heavy and too hot. I didn't want to wear that today. I didn't think I'd need it. A military man is equipped with both offensive and defensive weapons and is trained to know exactly how to use them. Then he is supposed to clearly identify the enemy, to know exactly who his enemy is. Now, follow my analogy a little further. What were some of the most sickening tragedies we had to hear of in the Gulf War? The first loss of life we heard of was from friendly fire. How often do we do that to each other? How often do we mistake the enemy because he doesn't, he seems to be blurred, and we're not really sure who he is, and we lower our boom on, and we aim our guns, or our little snide remarks, or our attacks at someone in God's church, instead of realizing, hey, all of us are in the same basket here, the same boat. We, unitedly, are the ones being attacked by wicked spirits in high places, and we need protection. We need help. There's a roaring lion out there trying to destroy us, to attack us, to bring us down, because he hates us. It's us he hates. Oftentimes, I think when we get up, well, when we get on our knees in prayer, we go through the litany of prayer, and oftentimes it becomes that way to many of us, I think. We sort of pray the same way from time to time about our own personal needs and our family and our aches and pains and other sick people and church and brethren and someone who we know of to be sick at that particular time, as we do every Friday morning. It, it can become like a routine. Well, on the other hand, I don't think that a person could make it a routine to have something printed on his wall right here from Ephesians 6 and then every morning get up and think, now I'm going to put on my head the helmet of salvation, and I'm going to put around my breast here the breastplate of righteousness, and I'm going to slip my feet into the gospel of peace. I don't think that's what Paul means. He's merely drawing an analogy to show that these values, these principles, the Word of God, are to be such a part of us that we literally wear them like our clothing, that they're so close to us, there's something that we put on, that we wear, that, that it protects our feet from the hard soil and the rocks out here. So it makes no more sense for a soldier to kill members of his own army than it does for us to bitterly and vindictively attack people within our own family of brethren and the church. 
I mean, the fact that I'm standing here is ridiculous all by itself. It's ridiculous. I preach the same gospel that I always did. I preach the same doctrine. I am preaching right now today out of the same Bible with all of its marks and pages falling out of it. With the same marks that I can show you here that I was using on the radio studio desk in 1958 when I had to do 30 extra programs ahead of time to go up to Springfield, Missouri so that I could conduct an evangelistic campaign. I haven't changed. I believe the same thing. But because of politics and because of friendly fire, my own father didn't know who his enemy really was. My dad thought I was his enemy. I was the best friend he had. I was the most loyal supporter my dad ever had. I would have stood by him no matter what. When he was wrong, I told him he was wrong. Maybe I was wrong to tell him he was wrong. Maybe I was wrong. But I expressed my opinion. I got had by friendly fire. I'm a casualty of friendly fire in that sense. Because no one really knew, no one recognized the wicked spirit, the demonic spirit in high places. No one recognized the manipulation. No one recognized the real enemy or enemies. Instead, they said, something's moving over there, shoot it. You can get hurt that way. Above all, he says, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is your only offensive weapon, which is the Word of God. And the more you know the Word of God, the more it is both an offensive and defensive weapon. You will not be dissuaded, you won't be deceived by other people, that's why I was astonished but how many people do you think seeing that television program where that pastor said, now let us see when Satan the devil was bound? Well, Satan was bound back when Christ was resurrected. Oh, thousands of people probably said. I didn't know that. But I was astonished because I knew better. Because I know the Word of God and I know what the Bible says about Satan the devil. There are dozens of scriptures. I mean, how many times do you think of Paul saying, quote, lest Satan should get an advantage of us? And how many references are there in Paul's writings and Peter's writings and in Paul to Timothy about Satan the devil and his influence, how active he was inside the church? What about the demons that were met in the book of Acts? What about Siva, the Jew, and the one that had seven demons long after the resurrection of Christ? What about those many occasions when demonic spirits, demoniacs, Satan the devil himself was persecuting the church right through New Testament history, of which this pastor down in Troop, Texas, standing up every Sunday in front of a congregation, knows nothing. How can you be that ignorant of the Bible? This is a very important part of Scripture, and I think that it is quite apt that the corporate seal of the Church of God International came from an idea, because I didn't know what to do with a suit of armor. My father gave me the suit of armor, and I thought, I know a biblical theme where armor is mentioned, 
And I didn't want to just put a suit of armor standing over there with a shield and a sword and a kind of a guy in metal, you know, that people would look like you think in a spooky old castle you see cobwebs and suits of armors. And they've always got an axe like that, and the comedian walks by and then the axe falls. We've, we've seen those things, you know. I didn't want a suit of armor over there in the corner, so I wanted something that, that had a spiritual theme. And I concocted this idea. Little did I know that would lead to a corporate seal for the Church of God Internet. Everybody jumped while I hit the podium. I'm sorry about that. The axe was falling. But I uh, came up with a corporate seal for the Church of God International. So he says, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And, verse 19, and let me borrow this scripture and apply it as if I am passing on to you what Paul passed on to them then. And for me, Paul was bold enough to ask them to pray for him. So I'm bold enough to ask you to pray for me. That utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Thirteen years ago, I made a private trip out to California, and I met at a restaurant down in Marina del Rey with three other men of an attorney firm who had conducted a marketing survey, and they had a thick sheaf of information in some folders that they put before me, and offered me a contract to do a syndicated television program of news and analysis, news and commentary. I couldn't mention God. It was supposed to be non-religious. It would be more or less like Paul Harvey, that type of a program. And I was to be given a very large salary of 150000 the first year, 250 the second, 330 I remember that, the third, never to exceed $330,000 for a seven-year contract. I turned it down. The thought came to me about that time. My father told about out of the pulpit so many occasions, and I won't go into that detail except to say that I was healed miraculously at age two because I couldn't speak and was tongue-tied and only could point and grunt at things. Most babies will talk by nine months, twelve months, thirteen months, at least say dada and mama, but I couldn't. I was two years of age and they were quite concerned about it. And my father's written that in his autobiography. They may have taken it out in later years because they don't want any references to me in that autobiography. But uh, he did write about it in the earlier edition, at least. I believe that what God has given me is a gift. I believe he has given me a gift of public speaking that I sometimes, myself, when a program has gone very old and it's maybe years ago, or I see a television program I did or a tape or something like that, I say... Did I say that? And I'm sort of amazed that I was speaking that way. I look at it as a gift from God. When Paul prayed and asked them to pray, that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds. And he was literally in jail at the time. He was in Roman imprisonment. He was writing through another person named Tychicus who wrote to this church in Ephesus, and he was a prisoner under sort of house arrest. So he was both figuratively in bond to the commission of Christ, that is, held by his obligation to preach the gospel, but he was literally a prisoner. That I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. 
Let me ask you, what part of the Bible should I avoid? Which doctrines should I avoid in this church for the next 6, 8, 10, 12 months? Shall I be constrained never to speak about childbearing because I may hurt somebody's feelings? Shall I be told by some power that be, you shall never speak about marital relations because you'll hurt somebody's feelings? You better never lift up your voice to cry out and spare not and show my people their sins. Or I'm going to get you. Who's going to get me? To whom am I accountable? Who has me in fear? Of whom or what am I afraid that there are portions of the holy Word of God that Garner Ted Armstrong dare not preach or I'm in deep trouble? I think... If you were to look back a few years in the past and see between the worldwide television programs I was doing and the ones I've been doing in the Church of God International, you would find a glaring difference. So long as I was in a worldwide church, I was handcuffed behind that microphone and behind that camera. I never once in all of the 27 or 8 or whatever it was years that I did the broadcast as the chief speaker on the world tomorrow a real hard, tough, straight-from-the-shoulder sermon on the Sabbath. We concealed the Sabbath. We held the Sabbath back. That was for the third tier of literature. We had a program where we'll just give them little little hors d'oeuvres out here. We'll just throw a few crumbs, but we'll wait for the good, you know, real powerful stuff later. Look in the last several years how many times I've talked about the Sabbath. In my personal appearance campaign, very one that I did, uh, I think it was right up here in Fayetteville, just, or was it back in, no, it was Fayetteville, I think. The basic whole subject was on the Sabbath, on Mrs. Runcorn, how my mother came to the Sabbath. My father tried to force her to give it up. I have directly gone through the meaning of the Feast of Tabernacles and the Passover and God's holy days on television. I do not believe there should be subjects that I should be afraid to speak. The Apostle Paul knew that what he said could cost him his life. And he is praying, as it were, he is appealing to the people, you through God's Holy Spirit stand with me, add your prayers to mine, that when the times come, the time comes, because he had to be thinking of himself here about this armor and about the evil day, and when I'm hit with a decision that I will either couch out of them and I will recant and I'll relent and I'll give up my faith, or I will boldly speak the truth of God, even if it costs me being thrown into that Colosseum to the lions. We don't know how Paul died. But you know, a lot of commentators know that when he said, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, that that wasn't some uh, spiritual analogy that there were some bad guys in Ephesus that had some bad attitudes about Paul, or that somebody tried to poison his food. It is obvious that God spared that man, maybe against bulls, I remember a little scene out of a movie many, many years ago, one of the really great uh, Hollywood movies, so far as it went, called, uh, I think in this case it may have been The Robe, but I'm not sure which one. might have been Spartacus, but it was one of those big extravaganzas involving Rome, and it actually showed some uh, a guy that had become a Christian, and he was fighting a bull, and he was given the power and the strength to break the bull's neck in the arena at Rome. Maybe you saw that movie and you remember that. And he, he had become one of the... Uh, what do they call them, but one of these warriors, and they give them a sword, and they put them out there against wild beasts, or against each other, just for the entertainment. Well, Paul said, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. 
He knew what horrible fate he might be looking at. How would you like to be facing something like that? Not just like an electric chair or even a firing squad or even a hanging, but being thrown to lions. That's what Paul was dealing with here, and he's asking these people, pray for me that utterance may be given unto me. He wasn't in a, in a situation now that he's going to go out and preach the gospel everywhere. He was in bounds. He was chained. He was like in house arrest. Maybe he didn't wear handcuffs all the time. That I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So, I think it is good for us to rehearse who we are, what we're trying to do, what we stand for, who our real enemies are, or enemy, and there are many demons, but one Satan, the devil, and to look at what God is giving us in the Church of God International, with these wonderful things happening, a doubly expanded summer program, this bright, beautiful new building with a few things that we're going to gradually improve upon, grounds we're going to plant grass and sod and flowers and have cleaned up and have beauty out here little by little as we can afford it and our workmen can proceed with it. I wish you would add your prayers to ours that our children will be protected. I think we had one child last year, unfortunately, in a ski accident, and he came up, hit the uh, lip or something, and the teeth caught the lip and bit right through the lower lip. Well, that's bad, but that's not, you know, life-threatening. There might be a little tiny white scar there for the rest of somebody's life, and that's sad, but it could be far worse than that. And, and you have these things that we need to be aware of, that we want God's blessing on these grounds, we want His angels to be here on these grounds, and no demons anywhere within... As far as I'm concerned, a thousand miles, but I sure don't want them anywhere around this property, that we want his protection for our children and the children of God's members, God's church members who will come here and be with us for the summer, that God will bless the workmen, that he'll bless the decisions that are made about the building, about the way it's going to be constructed, about what goes on in it, and that these grounds can truly be blessed and dedicated to God's work and the things that are done here will be done to the glory of God and the way He would have it done. When we play basketball out here, those of us that have already enjoyed a few of those, when you guard somebody, as far as I'm concerned, you just think of the name on the back of the jersey says Jesus Christ. You're going to run up and bowl Him over, knee Him out of the way, hack His arm real good? You know better than that. And isn't that the way, after all, that it should be? When you stop to think about Christians involved in sports. I remember time and time again talking about the environment I always wanted to work in. And maybe you saw this movie years ago when you were younger, maybe you didn't. But there was a scene out of Cinderella. And there was a happy little song. And Cinderella had to clean that horrible old part of the castle by a certain time. Or this ugly old uh, mother-in-law or whatever it was. It wasn't a mother-in-law, was it? It wasn't her mother, but it was a witch or something. I don't know who it was. But anyway, she had to clean it by a certain time or she couldn't go to the ball. Well, I mean, here came all the animals skipping along. And they came in there. Little birds are flying around. And, and uh, I don't know, but they had animals washing clothes and birds flying over and hanging on the deer's antlers to dry. And the little chipmunks are singing and the rabbits are singing and the birds are singing and everything. And it was just the happiest scene you've ever seen. And I said, why can't God's work be like that? But we got so big out there, we finally had to send for my brother-in-law, David Antion, who was one of our ministers out in the field in Akron, Ohio. Believe it or not, I'm going to tell you a brief little story, and I'll quit here in a minute. 
We had to bring him all the way from Ohio to be the minister over the printing plant. I bet Tony Brazil remembers that because I don't know how many employees we had. It must have been 150, but we had, an off, we had enough to have a church in the printing plant. And there were so many problems at various levels here and there. People living all the way from Long Beach to Santa Barbara, I guess, and all over the Pasadena area and coming to the printing plant. And certain attitudes would get started and somebody didn't like somebody. That we needed a full-time minister over the printing plant to counsel people to keep them from each other. I remember Tony Hammer, my wife's brother, having to actually get two ladies, go into a conference room like these two little offices we got on each side of the stage here, in Big Sandy, in the tabernacle, Feast of Tabernacles, get them on their knees and him get between them. That's a dangerous place to be, folks. He got between them and prayed with those two ladies to try to get them to forgive one another because they were fighting over who got to serve the beans in the serving line. I mean, who got to have the opportunity? Who got to be, you know, the one that could be there serving beans for the people? And it's more than that, of course. But, I mean, people just sometimes decide they don't like each other. They just sometimes decide they just don't like each other, that's all. And he had to try to solve that problem. Well, I always think of that, that little vignette, that little scene out of Cinderella, of the happy birds and animals, and wish that the work of God could be that way. That everybody was happy. That everybody realized the blessings we've been given. And I want us to start out that way on these grounds, and to realize how bright and beautiful and wonderful everything is, the beautiful things that are coming along, the summer camp to look forward to, the feast in the fall, and I'm, God willing, going to be back here in the middle of the feast for at least one sermon in this pulpit, hopefully to about five or six hundred people that will come from all over the country. I imagine some will fly here from very far away just to see the Tyler office and see this building and these facilities and be a part of it. And I'm just really looking forward to it all. To me, it is a red-letter day. It's a new beginning. And I'm very grateful for this building with its little minor problems that we will work out as we go along. So I hope you will share that with me and be joyful about it, be excited about it, be thankful for it as we continue as a local church to enjoy this beautiful room and all the things that are going to be happening out here on these grounds. I know some of you have got to drive a few extra miles. Sorry about that. Sure does help me. I'm only five minutes away. I'm, it's not my fault now. I did not look for this because it was only five minutes away. That isn't the way it happened. You can blame Matthew and Shannon. They're only a two-minute walk. They live right down there, you know. So, uh, But anyway, it, it to me, is a, it's a great joy to have it. This last week, five days in a row, I was in here kind of lumbering, to tell the truth, at 61. I wasn't really running. But I had a basketball in my hands for the first time in 13 years and got to soak my shirt with sweat and play some basketball and try to get myself back in some physical shape. For some reason, I have this crazy idea that the longer I can stay slim and trim and the longer I can stay in good physical shape, the longer I can exercise this gift and the longer I can write and I can be active in God's work. I may be still around giving you people an awful lot of trouble when I'm 86. 